Well, let's go to this God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning. God, we look at you and all of your attributes, every bit of your character has to be described with superlatives. You are the God most high. You are the most wise, the most powerful, the most just, the most loving. There are no deficits in your character, no deficiencies. It is all superlative. God, we look at Christ Jesus and we see your perfections worked out in human flesh in his incarnation and his life here in his humiliation. Father, we look at him and his offices and we see so many reasons to praise him. We see his perfect law keeping. We see his willingness to obey you in every bit of his suffering. We see his sacrifice and God again and again. We see so many reasons for worship. God, everything about you is worthy of glory, worthy of our everything. And God, we don't want to come before you this morning and hold back. And we don't want to come before you this morning strutting as if there's anything impressive about us. God forbid, we pray God that you would lay us low as we look at Christ. And that our hearts would be united before him to give him the glory that's due his name. God, help us to not only look, but God, help us to behold His perfections. Help us to see His willingness and His ability to save. And God, may that stir our hearts because we are needy of that salvation. God, we pray that You would help us to see His heart that is open toward us and the fullness of his supply, his willingness to help sinners and to do them good, his calls for us to come to him and to lay our cares at his feet. God, we pray that seeing him, that you would make us willing, that there would be a gladness in us to follow him anywhere he goes, to hear his voice and quickly obey to depend upon Him always and not to depend upon ourselves. To enjoy fellowship with Him. Intimacy with Him. God, we pray that You would move our hearts to listen to Him this morning. God, as we sing, as we open Your Word, we don't want to come just... We want to come as hungry children, but God, we don't want to just come hungry and, and looking for something to get. God, we come not primarily as consumers, but as worshipers. And so we want to turn our hearts to you, bow before you, exclaim your worth. God, help us. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word and give us yet more reasons to worship you, more reasons to bow. We pray, Father, that you would show us where we need to repent, where there are other lovers who are vying for the attention that's rightfully yours and the love that's rightfully yours. God, we pray for John as he has been speaking over the weekend as he speaks again today. God, help him. Give him words and give him your spirit. Give weight to the things that are said. We pray for Jordan as he speaks to us. God, fill him with your power. Fill him with your spirit. Help him to say the things that we need to hear. Speak through him. We pray for whoever is filling the pulpit at Grace Church today. God, we pray for other sister churches, other believers as they gather around our world. God, we pray that you would lift high the name of Christ, that he would be exalted, 
that his renown would go forth, that your kingdom would advance. Lord, we pray for John Chavez in Peru this morning as he preaches in that little body there. We pray, God, that you would work to stir the hearts of the people there and open the hearts of many to hear and receive the gospel. God, we praise you. We love you and thank you for the work that you've done in us. And we ask for your help as we continue to sing and to worship this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Our script reading this morning will be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. After Hannah had prayed and asked God to give her a child, promising to dedicate him to the Lord. When the child is old enough to wean, she takes him to the priest, leaves him there, offers sacrifices to God, and she prays. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My, heart, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge And with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol And raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He set the world on them. He keeps the feet of His godly ones. But the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king. And will exalt the horn of his anointed. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I invite you to Colossians chapter 1. Chuck did a tremendous job selecting the hymns. The last hymn, the last verse of the last hymn we just sang came directly from the passage that we'll consider this morning. Colossians chapter 1, and just prior to reading it, one small comment of preparation. The comment is, uh, this sermon in, in so many ways Uh, I have prayed would be of benefit to you all, but I selfishly and unapologetically say, uh, it's for me. The Lord's had me on about a 25-year journey, that's how long I've been in Christ, to try to plumb the depths of one question, and I don't know how much progress, if any, I've made, prayerfully a little bit, and it's the theme of the sermon. What does that mean? What does that look like? And the that is, verse 18 of Colossians 1, the preeminence of Jesus in everything. As head over the body of the church. That's the theme of verse 18. And I believe this passage accentuates multiple ways. We'll look at just a few of them. That His preeminence manifests itself in our hearts, our lives, and our church. What does the preeminence, the first placedness of Jesus look like in our hearts and in our church? That's our theme today. 
I'll be picking up in verse 9 where Paul is praying for this precious church in Colossae, and we'll read down through verse 23. Hear the word of the living God. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9, I'm reading from the New American Standard. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help as we dive into it? Father, our prayer is that our risen Lord Jesus, through whom... You've reconciled us to Yourself through His fleshly body, by His death. Our prayer is that through the risen Lord Jesus, You would open our minds. Like Luke 24, 45, when the risen Jesus opened the minds of His disciples to understand the Scriptures. But not only to understand, we ask that we would understand so that we may join You in delighting in the unrivaled preeminence of Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would You use this little basket of fishes and loaves, this little moment together, saturating our mind and our souls in Your Word, would You use this little moment and cause it to be multiplied into the lives and the fellowship and the ministry of Christ Church New Albany so that these precious ones, that the brothers and sisters with whom I'm united in in Memphis would have a deeper, sweeter enjoyment of all that You are for us in Jesus. We ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I said something to the effect of, what does that look like? What does the preeminence, verse 18 in the New American Standard said, first place. What does that look like? For Christ Himself to have an unrivaled, preeminent, all by Himself, first placeness in my heart, in my life. 
in a congregation. This passage offers us multiple vantage points to answer that question. And I'm under no delusion that in this little moment together, we're going to exhaust all of them. We won't even draw attention to all of them. But there are a few of those that I would joyfully invite you to consider with me. And I'll try to draw attention to at least five of the expressions that irresistibly rise like a mist from a congregation that enjoys the preeminence of Jesus. So our primary focus today is that little one word in the original. First place in the New American Standard, verse 18 says that he himself will come to have first place. Your translation may render that word a little differently. One uh, translation, the ESV, says that in everything he might be preeminent. The the NIV, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The King James, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The original word is a participle. It's an ing, having the first place, holding the preeminence. So, what does that mean? Well, before I turn to these five expressions in this passage that I want to draw some attention to of what that looks like in the heart of a believer and in the life of a local church, let me just try to do a little defining of the word preeminence. What does that idea mean? One definition is surpassing all others. Try to look at Jesus through the lens of faith as you hear these descriptions of preeminence. Another definition is To be preeminent is to be distinguished from all others. Above all, particular. Uh, One one lexicon that I have enjoyed using just to cause my mind to ponder what the Spirit is saying rendered the meaning of that word to be one who holds superior status, the highest rank, the, the place of prominence. Another lexicon, superior status in a group, preeminent among others. When compared, he is first. Synonyms for this word, the root being used in other places in Scripture, synonyms for this word, just to help us get into the meaning before we look at these five expressions. So what does that mean? Let's see if we can grab a little more tightly what this word is is aiming at. Ascendancy. Primacy, superiority, superiority, domination with distinction, incomparability, excellence, prestige, renown, first, first, first. I'll mention there's at least five facets that I'd like to draw your attention to in this passage. Let me tell you what they are, and then we'll try to go back and touch each of them briefly. First, the preeminence of Jesus in our heart, in our congregation would look like an enjoyment and appreciation of Christ-centered prayer. Number two, a basking in Christ-wrought pardon. Prayer, pardon. Number three, a delighting in God's Christ-centered revelation. First, fellowship and prayer. Second, our redemption. Third, God's revelation of Himself to us in His Son. Fourth, a pursuing of Christ-centered holiness. And fifth and finally, an establishing of our lives upon a Christ-centered eternal hope. I I say centered instead of first because I think that's really the best I can do to get at the idea of preeminence. It's He's the the son in the system. Everything about everything revolves around him. Our praying finds its orbit gravitationally pulled toward him. Our understanding of, appreciation of, enjoyment of the redemption we have and the now sweet fellowship forever we have with God is so Christ-saturated. 
all that God makes known to us of Himself is mediated to us through His Son. The holiness we desire is a particular, that is a Jesus-dominated holiness. And then finally, the hope that we anticipate is all dominated and sweetened with the aroma of Jesus. So first, an enjoyment of Christ-centered prayer. An enjoyment of Christ-centered prayer. Now before I say anything about enjoying Christ-centered prayer, let me just say something about enjoying prayer. Let's be honest. Sometimes prayer is difficult. It's a labor. We have to remind ourselves. We don't gravitate toward prayer. We have to work sometimes to even express prayers that we know we should offer. Well, that said, even so, everybody who's even a fraction of 1% in tune with real life should easily be able to think of a multitude of things that are worth praying about. There are no shortage of things that we should bring to the Father. And I would like to encourage more prayer about more things. So when I'm about to say an enjoyment of Christ-centered prayer, I sure hope it doesn't discourage you from praying about a multitude of other things but to pray about everything in relationship to Him. I'm not here to critique anyone's praying about anything. In fact, I was radically blessed in the preceding hour by the sweet aroma of Christ in the praying. So I want to say, yes, let's pray about all the stuff. Lord, make us more Thessalonian-like, prayerful in everything. But for today's purpose, there's one Thing that I'm especially burdened to encourage this sweet congregation to prioritize in her praying, to lay an accent upon, to saturate all of our praying with, that is the preeminence of Jesus will be manifested in this congregation and any other that belongs to our Lord by Him being enjoyed in all of our praying. Prayer is not especially getting something from Him. It's getting Him. Take a look at verses 9-12. through 12. I mentioned I'm not going to be able to exhaust any of these points, but maybe they'll become stimulants for your own exploration and meditation. In verses 9-12, to 12, this is not a prayer of the church at Colossae, but a prayer for them. This is the prayer of the Apostle Paul in verses 9 and following for that congregation. And we know that Paul had never seen them face to face. He had never been to the city of Colossae. He did not found this church. He heard of God's good work among them, in them. And as he heard those reports about what the Lord Jesus was doing in the hearts of these people and in the cluster of them together in this congregation, Paul was provoked to give God thanks in His praying for them. And the inference that I'm drawing attention to for today, I believe the unavoidable, unwritten inference of this passage is that Paul tells them what he's praying for them precisely because he knows that anyone in whom the Lord Jesus resides, that's what it is to be a Christian, Henry Skugel, the life of God is in the soul of the man. Anyone in whom the Lord Jesus resides would appreciate and emulate such Christ-centered intercession. So our first consideration of what does the preeminence of Jesus look like in somebody's heart or in an entire congregation, it would be an enjoyment of Christ-centered prayer. So what does Paul pray for them? Well, for quick observations. Verse 9, that they would be filled. Verse 10, that they would walk. Verse 11, they would be strengthened. Verse 12, they would give thanks. Look at verse 9. That they would be filled. That they would be completely dominated with the knowledge of God's will. That they would have spiritual wisdom. Holy Spirit filled wisdom. Why, why would he pray that? The answer is in verse 10. The purpose, verse 10, so that they would live, they would walk, they would act in a way that pleases God. What would that look like? It would look like a fruit bearing, an abundance 
of the Spirit's work in them and through them, that they would be increasing in the knowing of God, that their knowledge of God would be ever on the rise. That in verse 11, the omnipotence of God would be poured into their souls so that they would be steadfast and patient, that they would be persevering in their continual pursuit of Christ. Well, those are three things that Paul prays for them, but why did he pray that way for them? The answer is in verse 11. In verse 12. That they would give thanks to the Father. That there would be a spirit of thankfulness that permeates the congregation. And what would they thank Him for? For qualifying them to share in the inheritance of the saints. That they would be glad that God has saved them in and through His Son, which is why I say an enjoyment of and an appreciation for Christ-centered prayer. The crescendo of the prayer is that the people in the church would say, thank you God for putting us in the kingdom of your Son. That's Christ-centered prayer. Part of the preeminence of Jesus in a local church is seen, or we could say heard, in the way they talk to God. So, uh, at the risk of maybe unintentionally diverting you from a good thing God is doing among you, I, without hesitation, say God's Spirit is alive and well at Christ Church New Albany. Instead of feeling like a pathetic failure for all the ways you don't pray enough, or are not Christ-centered enough, or wished you prayed more, can I just say as an outside observer... It's abundantly evident that the Spirit of Jesus that filled the Apostle Paul and moved him to pray these ways for this church is the same Spirit that's alive and well in this congregation. Because with my own ears just a few moments ago, I heard the very same themes prompted by the very same Spirit rise from your mouths and your hearts for you all. An enjoyment of Christ-centered prayer is one of the distinguishing marks of the preeminence of Jesus in a local church. So may we pray Christ-centered prayers. The second, verses 13 and 14, and also verses 19 and 20, that's a basking in our Jesus-wrought pardon. A drinking deep of the gospel of Jesus is one of the evidences of the preeminence of Jesus in a local church. These verses accentuate our salvation, our redemption, in an explicit Christ-centered fashion. Again, I'm not here to delve into the depths of every one of these phrases. That takes a very long sermon series. But just to draw your attention to two aspects of the salvation and redemption we have that is explicitly Christ-centered, look at verses 13 and 14. Our entire redemption is in Him. We've been rescued, transferred from one kingdom to another, out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of Satan and doing His bidding into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, verse 13. But notice verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The redemption is not even something God gives us outside of Himself. It is a giving of us to His Son. He is all of our redemption. In your translation in verse 13, instead of rendering it His beloved Son at the end of the verse, yours may render it the Son of His love, which is a wonderful translation. Look where He has placed you. Though you once walked in darkness, you're now in the kingdom of God, but the way Paul renders it and says it to them with precision is to say, He put you inside the reign of the Son whom He loves. The, the, the one person in the universe that fully knows the agape of the Father, that's His Son, who so filled with the Spirit, never questions or doubts the love of the Father. He knows He's the beloved Son, and He's the King of a kingdom, and God has put you in Him. 
basking in our Christ-wrought redemption, that we're in the Son of the loved, that we're in the loved Son's kingdom, who knows He's loved by the Father. But, but look where He's placed you. Not only in His Son, but in a position of reconciled peace. That's verses 19 and 20. Verse 20 in particular, through the Son, we're reconciled. Verse 20, through the Son, we are experiencing this peace that the Father made through His Son's bloody cross. Look at the Trinitarian relationships going on between Father and Son in verses 19 and 20. The Father's happy, verse 19. It was His good pleasure. For all the fullness to dwell in the Lord Jesus incarnate. He was happy to send Jesus. He, he, he's not regretting begrudgingly the decision to send His Son to rescue rebels. No, He was happy. He was pleased, verse 19, to reconcile all things to Himself. Who's doing the activity in verses 19 and 20? If you just look at the verses for a few moments and ask that question, it's abundantly obvious the Father's doing the work. Through whom is He doing it? He's doing it through His Son. These Trinitarian relationships and workings in this sentence of which we're the beneficiary. Who reconciled us? Verse 20, the Father. Through whom did He reconcile us? The Son. How did He do so? Verse 20, a bloody cross. The King of the Kingdom who is the beloved Son in the previous passage is the same one who was mutilated on a piece of wood outside of Jerusalem. I've seen some horrific images of people being mutilated in my life, and I don't care to see any more. These things that just flash across our news feed. Isaiah 52, I take literally. His appearance was marred more than any man. I don't mean to come here with medical reports of what happened to Jesus at Calvary. You've heard those before, and they are worse than we have heard. But what Paul draws attention to in verse 20 is that the wood on which he hung was saturated with his blood through the blood of his cross. You get peace. Reconciliation. So second, not only is a, is a church and an individual heart that's enjoying the preeminence of Jesus thankful to express Christ-centered praying, but we're also dominated with this Christ-wrought appreciation for, this, for the gospel pardon that we have, the reconciliation that we have with the Father. This specified truth that the Father did the work through His Son at the cross is replete in Scripture. You know the verse and probably where it's found that God, that's the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Who did the reconciling? The Father. How did He do it? Through the Son. The preeminence of Jesus is maybe most clearly accentuated in our inability to detach our hearts from the Redeemer who gave us the redemption, namely the Lord Jesus. The hinge upon which our reconciliation with God swings is the bloody cross of His Son. Our redemption is entirely and gloriously Christ-centered. God did the work to forgive us and redeem us in Him. So the preeminence of Jesus, a delighting in Him in prayer, a basking in the gospel wrought, accomplishments of His bloody cross. And third, verses 15 to 19, delighting in God's Christ-centered revelation. This is what the preeminence of Jesus looks like. This is what it looks like for Him to have first place. We are happy that the Father makes Himself known to us exclusively in His Son, and what a grace. If you do an end around Jesus to get to the Father, fair warning, you will be incinerated if you try to come close to God without the asbestos righteousness of Jesus, just go read Leviticus and find out what happened to Nadab and Abihu. 
If you want to get close to the Father without the mediatorial work, covering, righteousness, goodness of Jesus, then go take a close look at Ananias and Sapphira. You get close to the holiness of God, apart from Christ, you're doomed. That's why we delight in God's Christ-centered revelation of Himself to us. That's verses 15 to 19. This was probably a hymn or a creed that the early church would sing or recite in many, if not most, of their Lord's Day gatherings. Verses 15 to 18 is one of the highest mountaintops of Scripture. I encourage you to meditate on it deeply, maybe to memorize it for your own edification. I'm under no delusion that I'm going to unpack this portion of this passage in one small point of one sermon. It is a bottomless, brimless fountain of the fullness of Jesus. In this portion, we learn that God was glad... For all the fullness to dwell in Jesus bodily so that you and I may know Him truly. So we delight that when the Father wants to make Himself known to us, He does so in and through His Son. Look at verse 15. Jesus makes visible the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Negatively, we cannot know God unless we know Him through, by, and in His Son. Jesus makes this same claim. To anyone who thinks they know God apart from Christ, that's almost everybody you've ever met. Maybe even yourself. Anybody who thinks they know anything of God apart from knowing God in Christ, Jesus would say, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Matthew 11. There is no true knowledge of God apart from Christ. And to enjoy the preeminence of Jesus, verse 18, Christians are glad that all we truly know of God has been mediated to us through His Son. He's the visible, invisible God. In verse 16, you know these wonderful truths that He's both creator and sustainer of everything. For by Him all things were created. In Him all things hold together. He's Creator and Sustainer. Verse 15 calls Him the firstborn. Verse 18 calls Him the firstborn. In verse 15, He's the firstborn of creation. In verse 18, He's the firstborn from the dead. That doesn't mean first to be born. That means treated like the inheritor, the heir, the rightful owner, the one to whom everything is bequeathed by God. If it's been created, the Father gave it to His Son because His Son made it all. If it has anything to do with the resurrection life and promises of eternity, firstborn from the dead, then He inherits all of that. He's the firstborn of creation. He holds the place of highest honor in the relationship of every, in relationship to everything that's ever been created, and He holds the place of highest honor among all who are raised from the dead. Douglas Moo said, in his commentary, the pillar commentary about that word firstborn, firstborn refers to Jesus' supreme rank over everything. He's the end for which God made the world. It all exists by Him. It's all sustained by Him. Verse 17 says it all exists for Him. Everything is for Jesus including you. You exist for Him. It's true to say Jesus came into the world for us. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. It's true to say that. But it's equally true to say you came into the world for Him. You exist for Him. The continent on which you live, the planet that you now occupy, the Milky Way in which we orbit, the entire universe, everything, everything exists for Jesus of Nazareth and people who enjoy His preeminence are very, very glad about that reality. So verse 18, of course, Jesus owns the preeminence in everything. That's our main point. That's what we're trying to say about prayer. That's what we're trying to say about our understanding and appreciation of redemption and peace through His bloody cross. We're trying to say verse 18, the way the passage says it. Verse 18, though, when it says, He is the head of the body of the church, so that He Himself might have preeminence in everything, that's not an invitation. 
That's a declaration. That's not a consultation. God's not asking if you're okay with the idea that Jesus be first. He is inviting you to enjoy His preeminence, but He is not consulting with you to see if you appreciate that or not. He holds first place. You do not have His throne, even though you may be under the delusion that you're in control, and you cannot have His throne. But you can have the joy of His enthronement. You can be seated with Him in the heavenlies. You can be a happy subject of, this, of the kingdom that He presides over, reigns over, verses 12 to 14. The preeminence of Jesus in our lives and in our church is seen in a delighting in God's Christ-centered revelation of Himself to us. But verse 18, one more comment before we go to number four. The verse makes a direct connection to his church. Head of the body, the church, so that he himself will come to have supremacy, preeminence, first place in everything. Only in a congregation of others who are conquered by Christ. Others who treasure him above all. Only in a cluster of believers who covenant together for the worship of Jesus will we see a rehearsal of what the preeminence of Jesus in His people will soon fully look like. Your relationship with God is very, very personal. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you cannot have a private relationship with Jesus. He's the head of the body of the church. It's in this context of a blood-bought community of saints who together are mutually accountable. A local church just like this one that we especially get to enjoy the preeminence of Jesus. Which leads us to number four. It's with that context, in that context, with His people, verses 21 to 22, that we pursue Christ-centered holiness. This is a crucial part of what the preeminence of Jesus looks like. I said for 25 years I've been asking the question, what does that mean? I think I can say to you sincerely, before God, I want Jesus' preeminence. What does that look like? Verses 21 and 22 are a strong answer. A spirit-fueled pursuit of Christ-centered holiness. Upon salvation, Christians have a fundamental change of nature. Verse 21 says what you were. Verse 22 says what you are. You were alienated from God. You were Hostile to him, you were engaged in evil deeds. Now, verse 22, you're reconciled through the fleshly body of Jesus in his death. But there's a reason God did that work. Why did he do it, verse 22? So that you might be presented before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. This is gloriously good news. Your salvation is not even primarily for you. It's for Him. You're a secondary beneficiary of God's great redeeming work. It's mainly for Him. So that you could be presented by Him to Him. Holy, blameless, beyond reproach. So the preeminence of Jesus necessarily looks like a Spirit-filled pursuit of Christ-centered holiness. Any territory of your life that you're unwilling to yield to Him? What are the lines you've drawn with God? You can come this far, but you can come no further. Christians are not sad about statements like the ones I just made. Maybe convicted. Maybe a godly sorrow. We're glad. We want Jesus to have all the territory. God knows how to clean up our prayers. I'm not even critiquing anybody's prayers. But we often hear prayers like, please be with us. He's here. Or, please give us more of yourself. That's impossible. Upon conversion, you get all of God. What happens in sanctification is He gets more of you. That's what's happening in verse 22. He's taking more territory in your heart. Holiness. Blamelessness. Being beyond reproach. Upon, upon true conversion, Christians get a fundamental change of nature. That's what being born again is. Positionally, you are holy. This is talking about practically. Becoming holy, 1 Peter 
chapter 1, becoming holy in all of our behavior. Having a new nature, we now have new desires, we have new passions. Namely, a person, Jesus, our Lord. He ran away to heaven with our heart. We now salivate for God Himself. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We once loved our sin. Even if we tried to conceal it from others, we were unwilling to part with it. But now, because of Him, we long to be what He intends for us to be. That is, holy. To be clear, we don't rest for one second on our performance to save us. We do not depend upon our works and even our progress in Christ's likeness to commend us to God. We don't look to our own holiness as the ground for which God should accept us. We do not look to our blamelessness or being beyond reproach. Rather, we look to the finished work of Jesus and therefore, that's exactly the connection in the passage. God did this work to present us holy, so therefore, we strive by the grace of God to pursue true holiness of life. We're putting sin to death. Because we're not condemned, Romans 8.1. And we cannot be condemned because we're in Christ and we'll never be separated. No condemnation, no separation. We therefore, the middle of Romans 8. We mutilate our sin. We make war on our sin. We rest in the finished work of Jesus, which is the evidence that we're saved which is coupled with a longing to be made more and more like Him. To be made more and more blameless. For Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. We want to be pure in His sight. That's what verse 23 teaches us. Leads to the last point. What does the preeminence of Jesus look like? Well, it looks like His centrality in our praying and appreciation of redemption and a happiness that God reveals Himself to us graciously, mercifully, only in and through His Son by His Spirit. A very passionate, Spirit-filled pursuit of practical holiness. But finally, verse 23, an establishing of our lives upon Christ-centered eternal hope. Establishing. Look at verse 23. It even uses that word. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Latch on to that little phrase. The hope of the gospel. Yours may render it a little differently, but try to find it. Verse 23, the hope of the gospel. Not moved away from that. That reality does something to us. We can read that phrase, but that phrase very quickly starts to read us. It's interpreting us. We're not interpreting it. What it does to us is it causes us to taste something that we know we will soon fully enjoy. If Christ is in us, the buds of our spiritual tongue salivate for what that little phrase contains. The hope of the gospel. Established there. Steadfast there. Not moved away from that. What it does to us who have tasted the goodness of God in the gospel of Christ is give us in a word hope. The hope of the gospel. This little church in Colossae I mentioned Paul had not personally seen. He longed to see them. He says that in chapter 2. He wanted to visit them. But he knew something about them, though he had never fellowship with them. If you just back up in the chapter earlier in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul's praying again. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. He said, I've heard that you New Albany people love each other with Jesus' love. That's, That's the reputation you've had. And I've heard that you you Christ church people down there, you, you have faith. That's what I've heard about you. 
but I've heard about your faith and I've heard about your love. Chapter 1, verse 4. Because, verse 5, the hope laid up for you in heaven. You are so fixed on heaven that you clutch Jesus. That's faith. You cling to Christ. That's verse 4. And you love each other. Something about your heavenly hope is penetrating the way you love each other. This faith and love of the church members in Colossae was grounded in their heavenly hope. That's the argument of verses 4 and 5. It's the same appeal that he's making in verse 23. They knew that the risen Jesus was the template, the first fruit, the paradigm, the portrait of what they will be like when he completes his work in them. When, when once we're glorified, incorruptible, free from the pains of death. Verse 23 is telling us to put the syringe of our soul into the fullness of Jesus now and sap out of Him. Hope. Pull hope right out of Christ deep into your soul so that you will continue in the faith. So that you won't give up on Christ. If you're like me, I told you, I believe the Lord's been asking me the question for 25 years and you're just catching the derivative effect of that. What does the preeminence of Jesus look like in me? If you're tempted to give up or despair or quit on Jesus or compromise with the world, to continue to excuse giving territory of your life to the flesh and to the devil, I can only imagine that to some of you it does sound like preachy talk, for you to hear me say that the solution, the power, the remedy, the tonic, the sweet aroma that you need right now, according to verse 23, is look up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Do you know what Paul says to this same church two chapters later? He believes they're regenerate. They're being attacked. It's something like angel olatry, worship of angels. There's some kind of nonsense being told to the church at Colossae. Hey, if you just keep certain uh, spiritual routines, new moons and Sabbaths and festivals, or if you really, really go deep into our wacky philosophy, then you'll really be spiritual. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The substance belongs to Christ, chapter 2. But he thinks they're really regenerate. Here's how I know that. He says in chapter 3, because you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth, because you have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with Him in glory. Heavenly hope. He's telling them in verse 23, you want to know what the preeminence of Jesus looks like? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, continue steadfast, immovable, latched onto Jesus. Verse 23, not preachy talk, it's gospel talk. The application is singular. I'll close with this. I want to try to say the one application two ways and I'll stop. Negative, positive. Negatively, until Christ is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. Just drink on that for a minute. Until Christ is enough for you, nothing else will be enough for you. So to continue on the application negatively, stop, repent. Stop trying to occupy the position that rightfully belongs to Jesus. R repent from the idolatry of self-preeminence. First place in everything. It's not yours, it's not mine. A and if you presume to have it, you're under delusion, but you're also on the fast track to misery. 
God's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not out to steal your joy. He's not telling you to not be about you because He wants you to be miserable. He's chasing your everlasting gladness by giving you what will actually satisfy. Do you want to be at rest? Do you want to have what this passage called peace? Reconciliation and peace? Do you want that? God is holding out a bountiful supply of what our hearts actually crave. So I'll say it positively. Receive Jesus into your deepest heart. The the fullness of Jesus. The the biblical Jesus. And receiving Him, this is what He's going to do to you. This is how He's going to mess with you. You can't change and stay the same. He will adjust you. He will alter you. It'd be the happiest ride on this side of eternity you could possibly enjoy. This is what He's going to do to you. He's going to invite you to enjoy Christ-centered prayer. Not laboriously, joyfully. Where you forget that you were transported to the third heaven. And you're doing that with a congregation like you just did. He's going to cause you to bask in Christ-centered redemption. Brother, the prayer meeting meditation before the Lord's Supper, thank you. I almost asked you just to come back and repeat it for today's sermon. That's what basking in Christ-centered redemption sounds like. This morning's prayer meeting meditation. A delightedness in this God-designed, bloody purchase. If you want the preeminence of Jesus, here's what He's going to do. Not only in your prayer and your basking in redemption, all Christ-centered, but a delightedness that God will make Himself known to you. He's not hiding from you. He gets no kicks out of not being found. He is not elusive. If you feel like God is a mysterious fog somewhere way over there, look at the real one. He wants you to know Him more than you want to know Him. How do we know that? He gave you the image, the exact representation of Himself in His Son. If you've seen His Son, you've seen the Father. He wants you to know Him more than you want to know Him. Look at Christ. Delight in God's Christ-centered revelation. But, you've got to let go of some things. You've got to let go of a lot of things. To put it in a Gospel-centered way, You cannot hold on to the sin for which Jesus died and hold on to that Jesus at the same time. He will provoke you to be happy in the pursuit of a Christ-centered holiness. And finally, look at eternity. Gaze into the portals of foreverness. Just let your mind and imagination go. Your sanctified imagination to a world of love where literally every neighbor, every person you can find, will do everything that they ever do for the glory of God, all the occupants of that eternal world will love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but that will not only be true of them, but of you. You're going to love your neighbor and be loved by them, and together, You're going to stimulate one another to continuously track down what it is to be absorbed into the agape of God. Let your mind and imagination, your sanctified imagination, go to this eternal hope. And the more you set your mind on things above where Christ is, the more fitted you'll be for this life until He calls you home. This is at the core of what it looks like for Christ to be preeminent in our lives and in our congregation. My last phrase. This isn't a question. This is a declaration. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He he is the firstborn from the dead. So that all those things are accomplished. Here's the product. 
He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that we would enjoy the sweet preeminence of Jesus in everything. Let's remain in an attitude of prayer for just a moment before others come to lead our service. We'll close with Paul's doxology at the end of the book of Romans. We'll be seated for just a moment of silence and then Elizabeth will play and we're dismissed. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.